being poor is a sin. If we please God, we will be rich. God wants his children to wear the best clothes, drive the best cars and have the best of everything. Just ask for what we need. You may be familiar with this type of message. All these quotes come from preachers who advocate what is called the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. And a basic premise of prosperity, the prosperity gospel is that God rewards faith with health and wealth. So if you want a greater health and greater wealth, you just have to work up more faith. If you are sick or poor, just have more faith. And then on the flip side, of course, if you are sick, if you are poor, well, it's probably because you lack faith. Today, prosperity theology can be found in the teachings of folks like Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Robert Tilton, Kenneth Copeland, Paula White, the list goes on and on. The name it and claim it gospel began in the context of American Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. And when considering things like consumer culture of America, the cult of the therapeutic, the marketing impulse that's around today, and then the sheer superficiality of American culture, one has said, it's not hard to conclude that this American heresy was inevitable. This is just what happens, as one author insightfully puts it, when one deifies the American dream. That is, takes the American dream and then makes it God. This theology, this heresy becomes inevitable. But while this is this, this American monstrosity, the message that God fulfills your own dreams of health and wealth through your own faith, you know, it preys not only on American souls, but then the hearts of anyone who's ever been in need. So this American export is growing exponentially all around the world today. And not only does this heresy know no cultural bounds, it also knows no generational bounds. So what we see going on today, we actually see going on similarly in the first century. So this is clear from our passage this morning from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there now. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 3 to 10. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, a young disciple and a young pastor, encouraging him and charging him to nurse this sick church back to health. The church in the city of city of Ephesus was infected with false teachers and false teaching. And they pushed the gospel of Jesus Christ aside in favor for other glamorous things, apparently things like genealogies. I don't know if you find those things glamorous, but we see just how destructive they are according to this passage and and paul here as he's addressing the church he, he goes after the false teachers he wants everyone to know who they are and the fruits of their ministry and so he calls them out here in this uh, specific section that we look at today first timothy chapter 6 verses 3 to 10 actually we'll start with chapter uh, verse 2 at least the end of it i'll go ahead and read that it says teach and urge these things if anyone teaches a, doc, a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
Let's look first at the marks of a prosperity teacher. The marks of a prosperity teacher. From verse 3, it's clear that Paul has in mind um, these false teachers. Because as he tells uh, Timothy to teach and urge these things, he also anticipates the challenges. So this here is the third time, actually, that Paul goes out and addresses these particular people. The first time, go ahead and turn there, is 1 Timothy 1. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. There, these false teachers are are seen to be teaching a different doctrine. They are devoting themselves to myths and genealogies, probably myths and genealogies that stem from Jewish uh, genealogies from the Old Testament. And these things lead to vain discussion. These are these are worthless things. They're over there having their talks about philosophy and genealogies and myths. But Paul says these these endless things are vain. Then turn over to First Timothy chapter four. Verses one to four. And Paul here, he states that these folks follow deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, actually. Paul describes them as being hardened to the Lord, having seared consciences. They're promoting false godliness as well, creating unbiblical rules of living stuff like, oh, Jesus said no one should get married. Jesus said certain uh, all the Christians should not eat this type of food. But really, they're going above and beyond what is written here in, in the gospel. Now we see ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says that these false teachers are abandoning two different things. These false teachers are abandoning two different things. Number one, they're abandoning false, or sorry, they're abandoning sound doctrine. These are teachings that don't agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, this phrase here, the sound words, is another way of referring to not only the words of Jesus, but also Jesus' disciples' words. The authoritative teaching of the gospel. So they're they're uh, abandoning sound doctrine. They're also about abandoning sound living that results that springs from the sound doctrine. So here their motives are corrupt. Doctrine is corrupt. Motives are corrupt. And we've seen this before as we've walked through the letter. But look particularly what Paul wants the church to know about these folks in verse four. He aims and states that their heart behind the teaching and ministry is marked with pride. These people are marked with pride. They are puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. You know, according to scripture, it is the height of arrogance and pride to misrepresent the creator God, his character, his purposes and motivations. And that's exactly what these false teachers were doing here. So think about your own life. You know, has anybody misrepresented you? Not only on accident here, has anyone ever misrepresented you on purpose by misrepresenting what you said, your motivations, and even what you did to other people? So I assume so. And you know, the more important the issue that they misrepresent you on, or if they're misrepresenting your character, the more sort of incredulous we get when the misrepresentation or even the lie happens. So we say, I cannot believe she said that about me. And, you know, it's insignificant if you say, you know, I can't believe she says I like Whoppers when I like the superstar. But it's incredibly, incredibly weighty when they misrepresent your very character. And then, of course, in the midst of it, we move to rectify the situation, right? We want to make sure, no, 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 really, I do like the superstar and not the Whopper. Or, no, really, I do love my children. You accuse me of cheating or or, uh, abusing my children. No, I love them. Or you accuse me of committing adultery with my wife. No, I love her. And so naturally we move to rectify the situation. But if we humans, you know, uh, imperfect, oftentimes unjust on purpose, if we humans understand that some injustice has been done to us when someone misrepresents us, imagine what the almighty God does. And feels, more importantly, and thinks when his very own character is misrepresented by humans. He is the all-perfect, all-sovereign creator. And so, in misrepresenting his purposes and reality, or misrepresenting his reality, is truly prideful. So, if we are created beings, 
and therefore dependent beings, owing everything to him, right? Worship, allegiance, honor, our very own selves, than to come along and say to ourselves or to others, you know what? No, this God, no, whatever God you want to make and believe in, that is okay with him. That's pride, if God is really who he says he is. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. No, really, this God, this God, no, we don't have to follow his, his, his rules. We don't have to be in relationship with him. In fact, we can go ahead and do our very own thing. And in the height of arrogance and pride, they determine for themselves what they think is best. And the Bible says that they, in so doing, earned a just condemnation, judgment. Sin entered into the world because of this very thing. If God is perfectly righteous, right, and and then cares about his holiness and and he must judge sin, then to respond and say, oh, but God told me through this piece, this uh, quiet voice in my head that this sin was okay, And that he understands my situation. He knows my husband or my wife, you know, they don't really give me attention. And so it's okay to commit adultery and to go love this other man that God thinks that that's okay. You know what that misrepresents, right? That misrepresents the fact that God is a holy God. That God is a committed God and a loving God. If God so is so loving to intervene for the sinners who earned for themselves just condemnation, and he does that by sending his son to bear the judgment that we deserve, in order that everyone who would ever repent and believe would be saved and forgiven, then to come along and say... You know what? God's grand plan of redemption, redemption, the reason why Jesus loved and lived was in order that you would be healthy and wealthy. That is to misrepresent the depth, right? The the incredible depth of his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, the redemption, his adoption. To set aside the very things that God is about loving sinners by dying on the cross for their judgment that they rightly deserved is pure arrogance. If God is who he says he is, and if what he says is true, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I mean, for anyone striving to be biblical here, uh, there's no real option to say, you know what? No, he didn't say that. He's not really like that. For those who do this, they walk actually in the very footsteps of Satan. You know, when the devil approached Eve to convince her and lure her into sinning, he sees the devil says, did God really say such and such? Pure arrogance, pure pride. And, you know, the danger of misrepresenting God is that in so doing. You make Jesus the supporting character in the story of your life. Right. That's what that's really what's going on. We are gods and God who has created us. We're going to use him and rewrite his role in history. And now he therefore supports me. I'm rewriting God's role because I'm the star of my own life. And keep uh, keep in mind, right, if we move to rectify the situation to make clear about who we are and what we really do. We better believe that our designer, our maker, is working to do the exact same thing. Pride is what the false teachers were given to. If they don't care and love God enough to teach what he teaches and live as he commands, it's obvious they do not love God. So we see these marks coming out in their own life. They're filled with pride. But then, you know, if they're not going to love God, they're certainly not going to love God's people. And so we see what pride does is it gets worked out into their ministries here. So first we saw their pride in their own lives. Now Paul wants us to know here their ministries are actually marked with pride too. And it comes out in certain ways. Look there in verses 4 and 5. We see the thorns of pride in church division. It says he has, that is the false teacher, has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander evil suspicions and constant friction among people 
So this is what the quarreling over words uh, eventually produces, right? It produces division and slander and all these things. It seems like that proverb is really true. The proverb that says, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. So this is the way that this works here. If the false teacher of Timothy's days were all about genealogies, what are the people one to? Well, they are one to genealogies. If they're having vain discussions of these endless genealogies and myths, then, and I'm holding that out week after week after week, then of course what you guys are going to think is of ultimate importance is genealogies. If false teachers preach a feel-good gospel of self-sufficiency, saying things like, you can be anything you want to be if you just believe, then their followers are won over to nothing more than the myth of self-sufficiency. You see how devilish this is? They're using doctrine, the word of God, And they're repackaging it. And those very things that they teach, it actually condemns. So you see how devilish this is. I mean, even the very words of uh, you can do anything you want to do if you just believe. I mean, one theologian that works at Biola, he says that actually, actually an absolute lie from hell. Because the only one capable of doing something that he wants is God. And so for us to come alongside, you know, our parents, they might, they might tell us this, or our friends might say, you can do anything you want to. If you just believe, that's, an, that's actually an absolute lie from hell. That's the myth of self-sufficiency. And some people are preaching this in the sort of cloud and cloak of Christianity. These, these teachers here, they're actually repackaging Christianity, and this thing actually condemns. It's no wonder that when you read through the Gospels and through the rest of the New Testament, God takes some very clear stances against false teaching and false teachers. So 2 Peter 2, 1, this is what it says. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And get this, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. But then he encourages us to look to Christ. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, meaning it will come. And their destruction is not asleep. He says, because of their own greed, they exploit using false words. So their false words, false teachings go to sort of fuel their own carnal desires for money. They love money. And that's what's going on then. So if you look in verse 5, these followers are following their own teachers, right? Their own teachers are saying that godliness was a means of gain. So the teachers and those listening, they both believe somehow that Christianity is going to move them towards great wealth. And in Titus chapter 1, there are false teachers reported, reportedly teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. And they're ruining whole households, Paul, Paul says there. But here in 1 Timothy, um, Paul actually never explicitly explains how they thought that godliness or Christianity was a means of gain. But it's not too hard to imagine what people would do. You know, the various schemes that people come up with to make money off of Christians. So just imagine what happens when American consumer culture and the commercialization of Christianity start dating one another. Consumer culture, whatever you want, we provide. And then the commercial of religion, commercialization of religion. In other words, everything religious I can sell because I can make money. When those two things are wed, bad things are produced. So on now here, I'm not talking about motives, at least on this first example here. Um, this is sort of more like an example of the commercialization of religion or Christianity. Think about the business of selling Bibles. Unfortunately, it actually has become a very large business. So just think about, uh, well, in some ways that's great. In some ways it's not good. I mean, if you go, if you go Google like Chinese women finding or seeing the Bible for the first time, uh, you'll probably come up with a YouTube video where women 
in China, they're getting Bibles for the very first time, and they run around, and they smell it, and they pick it up, and they're hugging it. It's, it's really encouraging. But if you go to Lifeway or Family Christian down the store, you know, it's a very different atmosphere here. So take the NIV, for example. I could get the Pew Edition Bible. I could get, you could get the Black Leather Bible. Now, you could get the Black Leather Bible made of cow skin, goat skin, calf skin. You could get the Pleather Bible. You could get the Journaling Bible. You could get the NIV Study Bible, the NIV Archaeological Study Bible, the Life Application Bible, the Women's Devotional Bible. I could get the NIV Thin Line Reference Bible. I could get the Giant Print Pocket Bible. I could get the NIV Skinny Bible. I don't even know what that is. Maybe they fit in your skinny jeans. I could get the NIV Faith Girls Bible in pink. Now, again, I'm not addressing Zondervan's heart here. I'm just simply noting that what we, the culture we live in, is without doubt affected by the, cons- uh, the commercialization of Christianity. And they know that we're consumers, which is why they're coming out with all these things. So that's like on the mild side, right? That's just commercialization of religion, consumeristic culture. Now, on the other side, the corrosive side, you have the health and wealth gospel. This is a repackaging of Christianity where godliness is a means to the end of gain. The prosperity gospel is what you get when you make an idol of the American dream where upward mobility, accumulation, hard work, and moral fiber are primary, one says. In that so-called gospel, naturally, the gospel that boasts of Christ's humiliation in Philippians 2, for example, about a Christ who had nowhere to lay his head, who comes to serve through suffering, a Christ who died an unjust death and then called his people to go and do the same. Naturally, that gospel has no place in prosperity preaching. Naturally, the gospel which proclaims the supremacy of Christ is not going to find a place in a theology that makes faith ultimate. According to the Bible, it is never faith that is ultimate, but Christ the object of faith. According to the Bible, faith is not about working up enough positive thinking in order to actualize or realize your dreams, whether to get rich or to get health. Faith is a turning to Jesus in heart, in mind, and then believing in what he has already accomplished for sinners who repent and believe through his dying on the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve, and then being raised to new life. Living a life of faith is a living a life of glad and loving submission to God and doing so no matter the situation that God brings. And we see that evident everywhere in Scripture. Well, what do we then make of a teaching that says godliness is a means of gain? What do we make of any teaching that says godliness is a means of gain? We're all still underneath the first point, by the way. First point is the longest one. Second is the second longest one. Third, sorry, second is the second shortest one. And then the last point is the shortest one, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Look at verse five, and we see here what we are to make of this. And we ought to let Paul's answer guide us. He says that it is a figment of of the imagination. That's a really unique way of putting it. It says, these folks are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It comes from their imaginations because it's not based in any reality at all. It comes from people, next he says that it comes from people who are depraved and deprived. Look at, at how Paul describes those who are given over to this thinking. He calls them depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Their minds are so corrupt, he says, that, that Paul says that the truth has been robbed from them. I mean, maybe Paul has in mind here Jesus' words where he says that, uh, you know, this, the word that he sows falls on the hard path. The devil comes and scoops it up. I mean, that, that could be what, what he's thinking here. They're robbed of truth. But the description is ironic, isn't it? I mean, those who say so confidently that faith leads to riches. Well, it is they who have been robbed of truth, regardless if they're confident or not. I mean, what else are they to teach? 
What else are they to teach? But the stuff of their imagination. If they aren't representing God accurately, they will no doubt be living in a distorted reality. They are indeed robbed of truth. And you know, if you speak to folks who have come out of this of prosperity gospel teaching, they testify to the same thing. I have a testimony here from an evangelical of a gal who wrote in this evangelical journal. And this evangelical journal, one issue was dedicated entirely to tackling the prosperity gospel. And the journal ran a piece that that had uh, different testimonies from different people uh, who were part of prosperity gospel churches in the country in Africa, the continent of Africa. But they eventually left to join the evangelical Bible preaching church. And their pastor who arranged the testimonies and conducted the interviews, he asked questions like this. Tell me what you noticed when you started coming to our church. That is the Bible preaching church. What was different from your prior experience? What did you hear that was new? What were some of the struggles at first? And then the pastor asked them to comment on things like uh, the gospel, the Bible, corporate worship, and lifestyle. And this is what one gal's answer was. This gal came from South Africa. She says, coming to, the ch- coming to this church, that is the new church, was the first time I heard about the seriousness of sin. When I first came, I was offended. Later, I'd go home liberated and grieved at the same time. Grace was completely new to me and such a comfort. I realized it was most important to understand the gospel of grace. For the first time, justification and sanctification were explained to me. At first, I wondered why each and every sermon went back to Jesus. I now realize that it takes me back to my need for a savior all the time. And that is what I need in order to change. When I spoke to my previous pastor about some things taught at my new church, he said the gospel was good for that context, but not for his context. He felt his people already knew the gospel and didn't need to hear it all the time. He felt there were other things that God was saying and doing in the world. Looking at the leaders of my previous church, you'd think they were living godly lives because of their works-based religion. Externally, it looked impressive. Yet sin was, not, was common and not dealt with. The idea of praise and worship was the biggest thing in my previous church. Music and ecstatic gifts, tongues and prophecies. Service was sometimes four hours long with two hours of singing. Now that in and of itself is certainly not bad. I mean, I preach for like three hours sometimes. The song always seemed to point to the individual. Now that's interesting. With a lot of I and almost no Jesus in the songs. There was no systematic Bible teaching. The norm was quoting scriptures completely out of context. I don't know why I took my Bible. The Bible was seldom opened. It was just misquoted. Now in reading this one testimony, you might think, oh, well, this, this is just an anomaly. This is not a regular testimony. But that would be wrong to conclude. So when we spent time in Dubai, there were a number of people who came from prosperity gospel churches and they had the same exact testimony. I mean, when you start talking to people who leave the prosperity gospel circles and then you yourself start investigating prosperity gospel teaching, whether it be, you know, stuff on TV or stuff in their books, all the while comparing it to the Bible and the Bible's context. Or when you start watching these TV preachers interview, let's say with Larry King and things like that. And see what they dodge and what they don't address, which the Bible clearly addresses. It becomes clearly evident that they are twisting God's truth, which shows that they are robbed of God's truth. God's truth shows very clearly that suffering does not evidence a lack of faith. So if you are suffering here today, it, 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 the Bible does not show that suffering is an evidence of lack of faith. So you can see Job, for example. He was said to be a righteous man, and yet he suffered deeply there. You can look at Jesus, the righteous man, and yet he suffered and died. You can look at Paul, the apostle. You can look at all the apostles who were either martyred or exiled. You can look at Hebrews chapter 11, where a gang of folks who suffered are lifted up there as our examples because they had faith. Because they actually believed in the promises to come. And it says there that they believed not having received the promises in this world, but trusting in the promises to come. That's faith. 
Jesus himself, he teaches us that believing in his name does not bring riches, but suffering and persecution. That's in John 15, verse 21. Riches are to come. I mean, don't get me wrong here. Riches are to come, but not in earthly wealth. So Peter, for example, he really wants those folks who are dispersed and persecuted. He says, look, your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading because it's in heaven in Jesus, not here on earth. And then, you know, what he goes on to do in first Peter chapter two. He says, look, if you are suffering, you go on and suffer as a Christian. Even in injustice, all the while entrusting yourselves to god because that's what jesus did so it says in first peter chapter two so don't get me wrong christians do say that riches will come but not in earthly wealth there is great gain but not in earthly gain it's gain found in something so much more valuable than health and wealth believe it or not and this brings us to point number two True biblical gain. Look at verse 6. He says there, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's, so it's not like he's saying, oh, we as Christians ought to be Christian curmudgeons. No joy, no happiness. There is no gain Here he says, no, there is gain. And in fact, he calls it great gain. And it's found in godliness with its attending contentment. Gain is not to be had in a so-called godliness with its so-called supposed attending riches, but godliness with its attending contentment. Right? That's why they're content with the daily stuff of life there. Happy with food and clothing. With these, we can be content as it says in verse 8. And even less than that, Paul himself is content. So Paul's a fantastic example of this. Uh, Go ahead and turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippian church, he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances i know what it is to be in need and i know what it is to be to have plenty i have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well fed so whether he has a lot or whether hungry whether living in plenty or living in want so you see that there he finds the secret of contentment no matter the situation need or plenty i am content he says But it would be wrong to take this contentment and say, this is the self-sufficiency that the prosperity gospel teaches. Now, you know what? There's like a hard prosperity gospel. There's one book that recently came out, 2013, uh, published by Oxford, uh, one of the best publishing houses in the world. And there it looks at a history of the prosperity gospel. And the author divides up the prosperity gospel into hard category, into a hard subcategory, and then a soft subcategory. Now, the soft subcategory, those would be ones that are very much so uh, cloaked in Christianity. So some of those folks might be like the Joel Osteens, uh, the Joyce Myers, the T.D. Jakes, uh, folks like that. And the reason why I bring up these names is not because I'm on a mission to bring them down, but it's because biblically what they teach is directly against Scripture. And my hope in exposing them and naming them here and then going to the Bible is actually to, to drive us back towards the thing that truly saves. I mean, I, in Dubai, there was this um, a self-professed Joel Osteen evangelist. And we had brought up some of the concerns that we had when we were taking him into membership. And we said, you realize that these, many of the things that he teaches, I mean, they're not rooted in Scripture. It's kind of like self-sufficiency cloaked in Christianity. And he said, yes, I recognize that. And this guy was a friend of the pastor in houston uh he said yes i recognize that but that's what happens on sundays during the week he said they teach different things now praise god if that's really the case but if what is being teached is purposefully not rooted in scripture and grounded on biblical doctrine 
then I'm afraid that teachers like that are encouraging people to think they're falsely converted. That this is truly what Christianity is when it is not Christianity at all. God is not the, ca- the, the, the characters, the secondary characters in the very story of your life. He is it. And he defines reality for us. Paul here, he says he finds the secret of contentment. But it isn't the contentment or self-sufficiency that the prosperity gospel holds out. It's not the self-sufficiency that can be found in pop psychology that encourages us to rise above our situations. It's not the self-sufficiency that's found in Paul's day among Stoicism. I mean, the Stoics, they even use the word contentment to refer to this type of self-sufficiency. It's not the self-sufficiency that can be found in Buddhism where everything is basically a figment of your imagination. So all you therefore need to do is to alter your state of mind. Christian contentment, according to scripture, is not based in self-sufficiency, but found in a Christ's sufficiency. It's not based in self-sufficiency, but in Christ's sufficiency. And this is exactly what Paul goes on to say there in Philippians. He says, I learned to be content in whatever situation, in jail or out of jail. He was in jail when when he was writing that. He says, I've been I've learned to be content, whether here in jail or outside. Well, the question is, well, how or why? How can he endure suffering like that? He points us to Christ's efficiency. He says he learns to do these things through him who gives me strength. That is Jesus Christ. So contentment, no matter the situation, no matter the persecution, no matter the calm. Paul encourages us to find contentment in Jesus Christ, not earthly health. Not earthly wealth. True gain, Paul says, is found in a godly life. A life of glad submission to Christ who is Lord and Savior. So in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, he says, and here he, compa- he compares godly gain with a false earthly gain. And he points us to Christ again. Verses 7 to 9 in chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, that is earthly gain, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. That's true biblical gain, contentment in Christ. To try and find ultimate security in anything other than Christ, whether it be health or wealth or relationships or material possessions, is to misrepresent God. Is to misrepresent Christ, his character, his work that saves, and his great worth. Because in so doing, to find satisfaction in everything else other than Christ is to say... No, Christ, you are not worth ultimate gain. But my money is. My Black Friday deals are. My health is. That's what the false teachers were guilty of. Setting aside God and his great work of redemption in favor of genealogies. Now, we don't really know what exactly is going on with these genealogies, but they're trading in the gospel of God for genealogies. You would figure with with all their study and vain discussions of birthing and dying that they get the hint that they should be looking for a hope in something greater than life itself. Why would a temporal being hope in the temporary? Why would a temporal being that is us hope in the temporary? You would think that we we too would learn through the experience of life and death. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6, 7. Look there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. He says, you brought nothing into the world and you take nothing out of it. So there he's just saying, look at, the, look at the bookends of life. And of course, everything in the middle of it. And let your temporary nature drive you to the eternal. So if you are visiting with us today, or a Christian and you've been attending with us for decades... You who have placed your eggs in the basket of hope, hoping in health. You sure you want to trust in something that has a 100% failure rate? Is that the wisest investment strategy 
If you've laid all of your eggs, let's say, in the basket of money, why trust in something that has a derived value? Right? Money is always taking on its value based on other things, the market, the global economy. Its value is always assigned. It requires us to give it value in order for it to have value. And yet we put so much value into it. With money, there is never inherent worth, but only derived worth. But with God, there is only inherent worth, never derived worth. He is a self-existent one, the self-sufficient one. So if I'm looking for something to hope in, give me that hope. A hope that outlasts everything. A hope that doesn't need anybody to assign it to him or wealth. But he who is just worthy of everything. Christ who never changes but who is worth all honor and glory and power and at all times never fails. Only inherent value and a zero rate of failure. Friends, hope in Jesus Christ and find satisfaction in him. Not only will you find a greater, stronger object to hope in, in so doing you will accurately represent the creator in a way that you ought to so you gain okay you gain it's a great gain you gain your soul you gain forgiveness you gain a pardon from judgment you gain a hope you gain a relationship with god you gain a relationship with your very creator and all of that is summarized and climaxed in being found in christ or gaining christ paul says so for us for you who are visiting and you know yourself not to be a believer, why hope in things that won't even last as long as you do? Or at least for money. Why hope in things that are temporal? Your health, finances, material goods. Friends, hope in Christ. You were designed to hope in something eternal. Repent of your sins and believe and assign God what he already is by believing and proclaiming that he is indeed worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. And he is those things whether or not you repent and believe. But regardless, he calls you, believe in him, and he will show himself to be those things to you. So we've seen first the marks of a prosperity teacher, second, true biblical gain. Third, we see the ends of the prosperity gospel. We see the ends of of the prosperity gospel. This is point number three. Look there in verse nine. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. If you look at verse nine, what do those who desire to be rich have to look forward to? It's just so clear right here. According to verse 9, they have to look forward to temptations, to snares, and then even more senseless and harmful desires that not only lead to ruin and destruction, but it plunges them into ruin and destruction. It plunges them into it. I mean, what a future. And then Paul reminds us of something that he thinks is so self-evident there in verse 10. For the reason... For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. I mean, just think for a second if you desire to be rich. If you love money. Just think about what the love of money leads to. Take greed, for example. Protecting what you have instead of helping others with what God has given you. Think of theft. Has anybody stolen from you? Have you ever stolen from another person and deprived them of something? robbed them of something in order that you might be happy i mean just imagine that you know on an ethical level what if we just reproduced that and everybody here just started stealing from people is that a good thing is that going to is that going to benefit the world think about what the love of money produces in your own families some of your families know what it is like for them to be torn apart because your very own relatives love your money think about what happens in your neighborhoods why is it that we have neighborhood watches 
Think about what happens in countries or the world. Divorce, suspicion, murder, materialism, idolatry, taking advantage of others, drug dealing, prostitution, workaholism, neglect of your family, pride. We could go on and on and on. It's clear, it's obvious why these folks are tempted in a direction away from Jesus Christ. Why they, according to the verse, they wander from the faith, it says there. And they pierce themselves with many pangs. I mean, they're satisfying themselves with the stuff of the world, right? When they're designed to be satisfied in God who is eternal. They're chasing after the stuff of the world when it, when it dies. It naturally matches the nature of man, sinful man, bound to die because of sin. But the Christian who hopes in the eternal, his soul actually lives. It's interesting there, right? The desires in their souls, they match what it matches their eternal destinies. Death in hell, death in heaven. About this love of money thing, it's, it's important to note a couple things here. Um, are there other roots of evil? Yes, there are. Paul says this is just a root. So there are many roots of evil. This is just a root. Uh, and it is not the money itself and, the, and possessions that is wrong and sinful. So if you are rich, let's say, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that you are living in sin. Here it talks about a love for money. So the Bible is not calling us to live an ascetic lifestyle, to not enjoy the things that God has given us, unless we know very clearly that we are idolizing it or being selfish with it and things like that. Here it is the love of money that is a root of all evil. Friends, I hope that this passage helps you see why loving money is so dangerous. Here in this letter, it's clear that it leads to teaching false things. It leads to division in the churches. It leads to people rejecting Christianity and going to hell. And ultimately, or the most important thing, it leads to a misrepresentation of God's very character and the wealth that is found ultimately in Christ. If you are one who loves money, so if the idea of being a billionaire for your own selfish gain, if that's attractive to you, which I assume to some degree is all of us, the Bible calls us to be on guard, to be on guard. In Matthew 12, 22, Jesus says that the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world choke out his word and keep it from bearing fruit in the individual's life. So Jesus said there that, that his word uh, falls on a heart that is mixed up with thorns. And those thorns are the riches of the world and the cares of the world. And therefore, the word does not survive. It gets choked out. So if you want to grow as a Christian, wisdom tells us not to love the very things that kills. When it comes to the prosperity gospel. I assume most of us are not susceptible to the drastic, harder forms of it, but maybe to the softer forms of it. Let me encourage you to stay away. There you are banking on false hopes. You want to believe in something. You want to hope in something and bank your life on something that works for the Christian in suburban America. As well as for the Christian in Iraq who are seeing their families and their societies being destroyed, ripped apart from them. These are folks who are dying, not because they don't have enough faith, mind you. It's because they actually possess a faith. If your Christianity doesn't work in those two different sections, whether you are in, uh, whether you are in need like Job or have plenty like Solomon, then that is nothing to bank on. Friends, trust in Jesus Christ where there is inexhaustible riches, not here on this earth, but in the life to come. He says that he is building a mansion for you, again, not here on earth, but in the life to come. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says the problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but that it aims for so little. What God promises us in Christ is far above anything that can be measured in earthly wealth. And believers are not promised earthly wealth nor the gift of health. 
God intends his people to have gain, and it is great gain. But that gain is in Christ, being satisfied by him and having finding all of our contentment in him, no matter the situation that he brings us to. Trust in him who is indeed worthy of all your honor, your allegiance, and your worship. A hundred percent derived worth or inherent worth. A hundred percent inherent worth with a zero percent fail rate. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would protect us from idolizing the American dream. For desiring larger mini mansions, endless buffets, all the stuff of the world that supposedly satisfies. Lord, we pray that we always would be hoping in Jesus Christ, in whom there is great gain. Make us satisfied. Grow in our hearts. Put in our hearts a large desire to be satisfied. And Lord, we pray that you would fill it, knowing that there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Father, we ask that with the, the wealth and the health that you have given us, Lord, we recognize that we are to be responsible with these things. Father, we pray that whatever life that we pray that we, we would know that whatever life and breath you give us, we would use to your praise, that we would further the gospel, that we would expand our lives just like Jesus did, exhaust our lives just like Christ did in order that you would be glorified. Or may that be our mission for however long you have us here. Lord, we pray that our theology would be much like Job's, that though you may slay us, yet we praise you. Though you take what we have and though you might give us much, we pray that we would be able to bless you in all ways. Lord, with the money we have that you have given us, Lord, we ask that you would help us realize that every penny we have has been given to us from you in order that we would be able to help others who are in need. Lord, give us eyes to see how we might be able to be helping those who are across the pews. Make us a compassionate people for our widows, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, and for all the disadvantaged. Give us hearts, Lord, to see where we can be helping in our community with the money that you have given us. Lord Jesus, we proclaim that you are our great, rich one who lavishes your love upon us. By calling us to be your brothers and you, our Father, call us to be your children. Satisfy us, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen.